This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the DSCC Youth Radio Show. My name's Abby. And I'm Max. And we're here with our monthly podcast where we talk about health issues which affect our ethnic groups in New Zealand. I'm a third year dentistry student. And I'm a third year medical student. And we like to come on here and just have a chat about some health issues which are facing our country and talk about it from a student perspective, maybe explain things in a way that help you understand a bit better about whatever's going on in New Zealand. So today we've got a pretty big issue. It's very common. Today we're talking about diabetes. So this is very prevalent in New Zealand, especially in different ethnic communities, uh, and it's also a bit of a mystery to, to people who don't know much about it. So let's get right on into it, starting with some general statistics. Uh, according to the Ministry of Health, over 5% of the population have, have diabetes, mostly being type 2. And the World Health Organization has New Zealand diabetes in 2016 as 9.5% of males and 7.6% of females. So generally the same between sexes with males being a touch higher, but on both fronts being very common. And as is unfortunately very common amongst these chronic health conditions, it disproportionately affects those of Māori or Pacifica ethnicity. So if you are from either of those groups, you are much more likely to get diabetes. And a both a global trend and a local trend in New Zealand, uh, diabetes is on the rise, with there being more cases every year. Yeah, so now you've kind of got an overview of why diabetes is an important thing to talk about. We'll just explain the basics of what diabetes is, so you kind of have more of an understanding of what we're talking about. So there's two different types of diabetes. There's type 1, which is not related to lifestyle at all. And what happens um, in our bodies is your pancreas produces something called insulin, which is a hormone which is responsible for lowering your blood sugar. So when you eat, your pancreas notices there's high blood sugar it starts making insulin, and this is the signal which tells your cells, hey, there's some sugar around, and your muscles start breaking it down to use it as fuel, and your liver stores some away to use later on when you're hungry. And what happens in diabetes is that the amount of insulin produced is very low, or there's none at all. So this is a really big issue, because usually in the body, there's a few different hormones or enzymes which do the same thing but unfortunately with insulin it's the only signal in the body which can lower blood sugar so if you don't have any insulin or you're not making enough then you're out of luck really unless you're getting it from an outside source then your body is pretty useless yeah so this results for type 1 diabetes to having consistently high blood sugar which we'll talk about later, has a large variety of harmful consequences. And so the treatment for this is people with type 1 diabetes need to take insulin regularly. They need to inject it because they can't make it themselves. 
And just to reiterate from before, this is purely due to your genetics and DNA, and this is not from your lifestyle. You'll tend to uh, develop this once you're born or a few years into your early childhood. It's not a later-in-life disease like type 2 diabetes. Yeah, so type 2 diabetes is different in that it is very much related to your lifestyle. So people with type 2 diabetes have elevated blood sugar above the normal levels, even when they are able to make insulin. So the high levels of blood sugar means the body produces more insulin over a long period of time, which eventually results in the cells which are supposed to be taking up sugar becoming resistant to insulin and they don't respond as effectively which means your blood sugar levels aren't lowered back to normal like they should be and this can happen when you have high blood sugar for extended periods of time like if you have a really poor diet and you constantly have high blood sugar then your body has to make more and more insulin and your cells kind of just stop responding to it. Yeah, so this is a lifestyle disease. It comes on later in life, usually in people who have poor diets, maybe don't exercise enough. But there are also several alleles in different parts of your DNA that make you more at risk of getting type 2 diabetes. And unfortunately, and we'll get into this later, these are quite common in people from South Asia, the Pacific or Maori communities. Yeah, and also similar but different is gestational diabetes, which is similar to type 2 diabetes but occurs during pregnancy. So when you're pregnant, there's a whole heap of hormones and your whole body just gets kind of out of whack. And it can be quite common to develop diabetes during this time. It usually goes away after you give birth, but it is a signal that women are more likely to develop type 2 diabetes later on in life if they've had it while pregnant, and unfortunately so is the baby. So how do we diagnose type 2 diabetes? There are several ways, actually. So the most common is the glycated hemoglobin HbA1c test which is a really fancy way of saying that the doctor or nurse will take a blood sample and they will then test to see how much sugar is bonded to your, to your hemoglobin, which are the small molecules in your blood that can bind oxygen. So they'll do this test several times over a few months and then they'll find your average blood sugar levels. If your result is 6.5% or higher on two separate tests, that will indicate diabetes. If it's a tad lower than that, that will indicate pre-diabetes, where it's not quite diabetes, but it's a pretty big indicator that you're well on your way. And if it's significantly lower than that, then that's just normal, or, or perhaps even a bit lower than normal. Yeah, so this isn't the only test. There's a few others. There's random blood sugar level tests, which are done irrespective of when you've last eaten at any time of the day. There's fasting blood sugar level tests, which are really good for detecting diabetes because it doesn't matter, you know, when you last ate. There's no food in your system. There's no sugar that you've had. So it's really good to tell what you're like at processing sugar because you haven't had any recently. 
So if this comes back as high levels, then this is a really big indicator of diabetes. And then another option is the oral glucose tolerance test. And this is where you're given a sugary drink and then your blood sugar levels are monitored as you digest the sugar. So if your blood levels go down very slowly, then this indicates that you have some level of resistance to insulin. And unfortunately, that means you probably have diabetes. Okay, so that's how we might diagnose type 2 diabetes. But we haven't really talked about why type 1 diabetes is harmful. So this is the one that is genetic. This is when your pancreas doesn't produce any or much insulin. And therefore your cells aren't being told it's time to take in all of the sugar and use it to get to work. So this is quite bad because if your cells aren't taking up the sugar in your blood, despite there being plenty of it there, they can't actually do their cellular functions. So your muscles can't flex, your liver cells can't detoxify your blood, they can't really get to work. So effectively, in type 1 diabetes, there's plenty of sugar everywhere, but your cells are constantly starving. So if your cells can't use glucose or sugar, they have to switch to other fuel sources such as ketones. They can get these ketones from breaking down your fat and muscle. And this is why type 1 diabetes is, is considered a wasting disease. So your muscles will break down, you lose all of your body fat, and you become quite skeletal and really unhealthy. So if you don't control your type 1 diabetes and take your insulin at good controlled measured times, it can get really bad for you quite quickly. Yeah, so along with kind of constantly starving, even when you've been eating food, there's a whole lot of other things that come along with having high blood sugar, which are really bad. So all treatments for diabetes aim to lower your blood glucose. Um, glucose obviously isn't inherently a bad thing. We actually really need it to survive. It's what every part of your body uses as fuel, and it's the only type of fuel your brain can use to function. So we definitely need some of it in our blood to feed our brain and our muscles. But when we have too much of it for long periods of time, it can be quite unhealthy. Yeah, so if your blood glucose exceeds how much you burn through metabolism, if you are having more glucose in your blood than you use during exercise and daily life, it will be stored away as glycogen in the liver and muscles. But there's only so much glycogen that can be stored in the body. And if you have too much glucose that needs to be taken away and stored, it will, instead of being stored as glycogen, start to be stored as fat, leading to weight gain, which has its own set of health issues. Yeah, and in addition to this, high blood glucose also makes you pee a lot more, which sounds really strange and unrelated, but I'll explain why. So your kidneys are always working hard to process your blood, and when there's lots of sugar in the blood, they have to work even harder to remove the extra sugar that's floating around and not being stored away. So what they do is they filter this out in, into the urine. And it uses a lot more water to process this when there's more sugar. So you get dehydrated a lot faster, you get more thirsty, and you just urinate a lot more. And this has a very large set of issues. So dehydration, while it sounds quite benign, has a lot of different issues from all over the body. 
one of the big ones is in the mouth. So have a go. What's that all about? Yeah, so when you're being dehydrated, you're making less saliva. And we talked in one of our previous podcasts about why saliva is the best thing to ever happen to teeth. It has a lot of protective factors. So if you have less saliva, then you're going to be a lot more likely to develop cavities, caries, and just a lot of mouth problems in general. And another kind of dental perspective on this is that when you have more glucose in your blood, you also have more glucose in your saliva, which is really bad because bacteria who break down your teeth love glucose. That's what they use to survive. So when you've got more glucose in your saliva, you're going to have a lot more problems with your teeth. And this extends far beyond teeth as well. So if you're chronically dehydrated due to having high blood glucose, this can lead to skin problems, believe it or not. So because you have so much water that's required to get rid of this extra sugar to flush it out in your pee, the body takes water from all over, from all systems. This is not only the saliva, but also the skin. This makes your skin very dry and quite prone to cracking. And another kind of curveball here about why diabetes sucks is that it can cause nerve damage which they sound quite unrelated, but Max can explain a bit more about how it works. Yeah, so this is technically called diabetic neuropathy. So this results when, over time, if you have very high blood sugar levels, it can result in nerve damage, vision problems, trouble with feeling, and this is especially common in the extremities, like feet and fingers. So this is actually a result of chemistry, which is nice and cool. So your sugar... It usually stays all liquid and dissolved in the blood, but if it's in very high concentrations, it can actually solidify and then crystallize. So if, let's say, it crystallizes in the eye, your eye can become rather crunchy and solid and not work properly, which is both rather cool and also utterly terrifying, quite like a lot in medicine, but I really wouldn't want to, to experience it myself. Yeah, and so this is why you may have heard it's important to look at diabetic patients' feet and check them for sores, cuts, or infections, because they might sustain injuries here and not even know because they literally can't feel their feet because of chemistry. Yep, so that's all wonderful and horrible. So moving on, how does this have to do with different cultures and different ethnicities? Yeah, well, as we said earlier... Māori, Pacifica and South Asian groups are disproportionately affected by diabetes and this is mostly type 2 diabetes. And we talked about how type 2 diabetes is lifestyle dependent but this isn't actually the whole story. As with every illness we're coming to learn there is a genetic component to it. So the way I like to explain it is that lifestyle is the trigger to developing diabetes but what loads the gun is your genes. Yeah, so if we take South Asians, for for example, we generally think of them as having a healthier lifestyle than those in New Zealand or other Western countries. They have a healthier diet. They are probably more active. But believe it or not, uh, some countries in South Asia have higher rates of diabetes than even the U.S., so despite this being a lifestyle illness, since this area has such a 
high level of these genes which make you more susceptible to developing diabetes, this results in a really high prevalence. Yeah, and the same goes for those in Māori and Pacifica groups who are much more susceptible to developing diabetes, as well as other health conditions we've talked about, like cardiovascular disease and things like obesity. And along with this comes the cultural factor. So we've talked about before on this podcast that food is really central to gatherings of the, of the whānau, and is the centerpiece to lots of cultural ceremonies and activities. And it's also really important for whakanoa practices, which we've talked about in a previous podcast, which is how uh, these tapu or sacred uh, activities or locations or things can become normal and is really common and important in cultural practices. And all of this, all of this food, which is, so, which is so central to the culture, can lead to a higher exposure to sugar. Yeah, and when you combine this with maybe a less active lifestyle, with the genetics that make you more susceptible, you can see why it's actually almost hard not to develop diabetes for some of these people. It's really cold. I wonder if I approach him if he'll give me anything, anything to eat. Hey, you hungry? You thirsty? Come down to the Kensington by the Oval. Sorry, I mean, come down to the Oval by the Kensington. We have soup. We have cheese rolls. I know you all love the cheese rolls. We have sandwiches. We have coffee. Tea, Milo, with sugar to your preference. Best part of it all, it's all free. Three sugars, four, five. No, we don't do five. Coffee, okay. one sugar. Two sugars, sir. The Caravan. Open every Sunday, 9am to 12pm. Rain, hail or shine. Look for us on Facebook. The Caravan. So who is at risk? So we've talked about cultural groups, so people from South Asian communities, Māori and, and Pacifica. Uh, but there's also people who have a family history of diabetes, people who have a poor diet or sedentary lifestyle, people who are overweight or obese, uh, people who have developed gestational diabetes themselves or their mothers did, and those who have high blood sugar levels, also called pre-diabetes, which is a very big indicator that you're looking at diabetes in the future. Yeah, so it's all very doom and gloom. You know, there's a lot of people in those groups. I'd say there's probably more people in those groups than aren't. So it seems like everyone's going to get diabetes and there's nothing you can do about it. But that's not true. It's not a set thing even if you're you know maybe from a pacifica community you love food your mum had diabetes it's not necessary that you're going to get it yourself there are things you can do to stop it and we're going to talk you through that now yeah so unfortunately type 1 diabetes there is no cure but the condition can be managed through taking insulin in a manner that suits you best so there's two main different ways to take your insulin uh, you can self-manage and give yourself insulin after every meal. 
or you can be on a rather strict insulin program where you take it once a day and then you plan your meals and, and exercise around this. Yeah, and for type 2 diabetes, the prognosis is a little bit better because, of course, it can be treated and managed as well. Um, it can be prevented, which is great, and sometimes it can even be reversed. So to prevent type 2 diabetes in the first place, you should manage your sugar intake and try and reduce this as much as possible, especially those people who are at risk. So if you listen to this and think, oh yeah, that sounds like me actually, make sure you're not eating too much sugar. And another big key to preventing diabetes is exercise. So maybe some people think, oh yeah, I wouldn't mind dieting, but I hate exercising. Well, unfortunately for you, studies have found that dieting alone is hardly effective, but if you diet and exercise together, then it's very effective. So doing both is the best way to prevent diabetes. So you might be wondering what you know, the best type of exercise to do is and how often you should do it. And I've done a bit of research on this. And the first thing I want to say is that the best type of exercise is always one that you're going to be able to do. So you should just find some kind of exercise you like. If it's going for a walk or going for a bike ride, then that's best because you're most likely to do that. But if you're already into exercise and you want to know, you know, whether aerobic exercise is the best, like running or weightlifting, well, the best thing you can do is lift weights and do aerobic exercise. So if you alternate these, studies have shown that this is the best method for preventing diabetes. Great. So the upshot of all that is that if you are in a pre-diabetic state and you're worried about maybe developing type 2 diabetes in the future then it is possible to reverse this through dieting and exercise management. It is not at all a sure thing. So if all else fails and you do develop diabetes, then it's not the end of the world. There's medications you can use to manage this. And Max is going to tell you a bit more about what they are. Yeah, so the first line in New Zealand is metformin which is a very effective drug. It acts on the liver to prevent it from releasing lots of sugar into the blood and also makes your body more sensitive to insulin. So this means that not only are you releasing less sugar into the blood, but you're taking up more sugar from the blood. Which makes sense because the last thing you want when you already have high blood sugar is for your liver to just be making even more of it. Yeah, that would not be an, <laughs> an ideal state. And the, the really good thing about metformin is that it's safe for, for pregnancy and breastfeeding. So not only is it good for usual type 2 diabetes, but it's also really effective for gestational diabetes. So most people can take this drug and it's very effective for most people. And if it's not effective for you or you have a metformin allergy then you could be prescribed insulin or other medications, and there's still a very good prognosis. So now we've kind of talked about the main part of our topic. We just wanted to come in and share some fun facts with you. Well, as fun as they can be when talking about diabetes. Um, some things you might have picked up yourself or just some interesting little tidbits. Yeah, so the first one is sort of a PSA. So this is first aid for type 1 diabetics. So it's quite possible that someone with type 1 diabetes may overdose on their insulin, 
they may take more insulin than they require, and then and then their blood sugar levels plummet to very, very little. And this is really dangerous because then their cells have absolutely nothing to use, they have run out of fuel, and this could and this could be a life-threatening issue. So if a type 1 diabetic is shaky, if they're irritable, drowsy, confused, or maybe unconscious, the best thing to do is call 111 and get them a sugary drink and give it to them. Uh, even if you are mistaken and they haven't overdosed on insulin, them taking the sugary drink and their blood sugar levels going really high isn't going to be a life-threatening issue. It can be managed with put some more insulin. But if they have overdosed and you've given them a sugary drink, that could save their life. So just something to keep in mind. Yeah, and I know we just talked about why high blood sugar is really bad, but it's important to note that that's all in the long term. This is over months and years of having high blood sugar. If you give a type 1 diabetic a sugary drink, they're not going to stop being able to feel their feet or anything like that because of it. And another slightly more fun fact is that when you have type 1 diabetes, your pee becomes really sweet. And this is because of all the sugar in your blood being filtered out into your urine like we talked about earlier. Now, I don't recommend this, but if you were to taste a type 1 diabetic's urine, it would be very sugary. And this is actually what doctors used to do back in the day to diagnose diabetes when they didn't have all these tests, which is disgusting. And a similar thing is that the breath of a type 1 diabetic may be fruity if they're not managing their medication well. And Which sounds kind of pleasant. Yeah, it is rather pleasant, but probably not very good for their biochemistry, because this means that they are in ketosis, so their cells aren't using glucose and they're actually using ketones instead, which is not ideal. Yeah, so their body is basically destroying itself, but their breath smells nice. And the final fun fact we have is that some of our insulin is actually produced through, ch through Chinese hamster ovaries. Not quite as gross as it sounds, these cells are harvested and grown in a sterile environment and genetically reprogrammed to produce human insulin, which we can then extract and purify. Yeah, so now you know where all those insulin injections are coming from. They're coming from Chinese hamster ovaries. And that about wraps up our podcast today. We hope you learned something new, even if it's just about Chinese hamster ovaries. But diabetes is a really huge thing worldwide, and it's increasing a lot, so it's good to know these things. Yeah, so we hope that you learned something, and we're looking forward to coming back next month. I hope you tune in and enjoyed yourself. Yeah, see you next time. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.